Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to another episode of the RV. We are headed to Montreal to speak with Bart Edis. Bart is a professor at McGill University and is the author of the new book, Learning from Tomorrow, Using Strategic Foresight to Prepare for the Next Big Disruption. So, but welcome, super welcome to the Relatable Voice. <laughs> Lucia, I'm so happy to be here. I'm excited for the road trip we're going to take for the next half hour or so. Uh, and I think we've got some interesting things to talk about. So thanks for welcoming me onto the program. So, Bart, you have quite an impressive background that has led you all around the world. What country do you miss living in the most? Wow, that sure is a hard one because I, I love living in the country I'm in now, particularly the part of the country I'm in. So you, as you mentioned, uh, Montreal is my base and behind me, you might see a little bit of the snow that fell overnight. But uh, of the dozens of countries I've visited and the several that I've lived in, I would have to say the Philippines. Uh, I spent a good chunk of my life there uh, or over 15 years. Um, that's where uh, my two children uh, were born. Um, there are so many things I love about the country, particularly when it's winter in Canada, I think of the warm, sunny beaches and beautiful coastlines of the Philippines, but also the people, uh, the, the amazing resilience of the Filipino people who always seem to put a, a smile on their face, even when facing hardship. Uh, it's a very welcoming country. Uh, and it has, uh, in, in many ways, it's, it's uh, underexplored. I think uh, tourists who go to, to East and Southeast Asia Not enough of them go and discover the uh, amazing sites and, and, again, the wonderful people of that island nation. Yeah, I worked with some people from Philippines, and they were so kind. I really would like to visit Philippines. Maybe one day I will ask you some tips. Well, I'm at your service. Just let me know. <laughs> Thank you. And, but you are a professor at McGill University. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. So what were you doing before you decided to become a professor? Well, I was involved in various things, but what's taken most of my time over the last 20 to 25 years has been working in international development. So I, I worked for a couple of international organizations, one called the OECD that's based in Paris and another, the Asian Development Bank that's headquartered in Manila in the Philippines. And uh, in both of those roles, uh, I was working with teams providing technical assistance, capacity development, uh, advice, uh, and in the case of the Asian Development Bank, financing uh, to help countries develop, to move up the, the ladder, to address social and environmental challenges. So uh, in different capacities, I, I found the work extremely rewarding. Uh, I came to the end of my Asian Development Bank career uh, in November 2020. So during the pandemic, 
Uh, I was actually part of the great resignation because I resigned my job uh, because I was ready for a new challenge. I had worked in, in big uh, bureaucracies, international agencies, and I wanted to, to work on my own with my hand in different pots and working with different organizations. And so one of the things I did was, was join the faculty of McGill University. There's a part of McGill that deals with international development which uh, is a field I've been most closely involved with the last 20 years. It's called the Institute for the Study of International Development. It's there that I work as a professor of practice doing research, uh, contributing to curriculum development, uh, advising and mentoring students, uh, and representing the university in, in different public fora. Wow, you've been doing a lot, Bart. And now you also are an author, and your book is called Learning from Tomorrow, Using Strategic Foresight to Prepare for the Next Big Disruption. So, but what exactly does foresight mean to you? I thought I would just take an opportunity to, to show uh, visitors to this uh, uh, recording uh, exactly what the book cover looks like. So, yes, as you point out, the book is called Learning from Tomorrow. And it's about strategic foresight, which is a structured and systematic way of, of using ideas about the future uh, to better anticipate and prepare for change. So, so foresight is a field that's really been in existence since oh, the 1950s. But in the last few years, it's gotten a real boost as more and more organizations in the public sector, in the private sector, NGOs, foundations, they're finding that the, the set of tools that you can use in foresight help you to appreciate what are some of our plausible futures. So looking 10, 15, 20 years out, where might we be? It's, it's not a case of using a crystal ball, but using some different strategies and facilitated workshops and, and drawing on different disciplines like systems theory and sociology and economics and identifying what are some of the big trends that are influencing the world and what are some of the new ones that may emerge and how might they interact to create our futures? And I use futures plural because from today, we don't know exactly what our future is gonna look like, but we can come up with an idea on some plausible futures that could take place. That's the short story. And I wrote the book, um, again, uh, Learning From Tomorrow to share this tool, this knowledge uh, with, with others uh, in the midst of the pandemic, the book was published, and in this time of great upheaval when so much is changing, using foresight as we exit the pandemic can help us prepare for the next big disruption, seizing opportunities, building our resilience, and being ready to tackle risks that may confront us. Mm -hmm. And what inspired you to write this book? Oh, it was a couple of things. One was I spent so much time in Asia. And uh, as, you, as you can see, anyone who's paying attention, the, the world is tilting toward Asia. The, the, the role, the influence of, and it's not just China. People often think of oh, China, the, you know, the biggest economy and, and influential in so many spheres, but it's of course, Japan that's been there for a while and been an economic power. Korea, which has risen up and, and is now uh, you know, among the de most developed countries, but a whole range of middle-income countries that are also rising with large populations like, like the Philippines and Vietnam, Indonesia, Thailand. And so being in Asia, I saw 
kind of the world tilting in this direction. And in many areas, Asia is kind of at the cutting edge. You've got uh, uh, leading edge uh, innovation and technology, uh, and digital transformation in countries like Singapore, in China, of course, Japan and other places. And so this I felt like I was seeing the future living in that region for so many years. And I remained in regular contact from my base in Montreal. So that was one of the things, being Asia, uh, a dynamic region, growing fast, transforming before our eyes and playing a much bigger role in the world. And the second thing that inspired me was I started the book during in the early stages of the pandemic. And in so many ways, we could collectively as a world, <laughs> our leaders uh, could have been so much better prepared. And so to help everyone in their organizations and in their private lives and their families as they're looking forward, how can they prepare for disruptions like a pandemic uh, or things that are less dramatic but could nonetheless come our way? And strategic foresight is one way to do that. So this is, if you will, it's it's my contribution to the, the public sphere, to the the open domain to uh, you know, encourage people to, to use these tools that are available to help us understand how things might evolve from here and to be better prepared so we don't suffer as much the next time there's a pandemic or other big crisis. This is a big, big contribution, but because we were absolutely unprepared for this pandemic, and COVID was obviously the biggest disruption as of late. And what were some of the most common strategic mistakes you noticed that were done during this time? Well, you know, it's for all of the leaders at whatever level, uh, international organizations, heads of government, uh, subnational governments like states and provinces, cities, this this was this was something uh, quite unusual, right? We'd, we hadn't, we have not seen a global pandemic in, in most of us in our lives, right? So it was not part of the usual day-to-day uh, -day business or, 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 you know, things that will happen, accidents and events. A global pandemic is something that you just don't anticipate. So I have a measure of, I guess, sympathy or, or some understanding for, for leaders who were a little bit caught off guard um, and didn't, um, didn't take the, the wisest steps at the beginning. It, we were part of the problem is there were strategic mistakes made all the time uh, as we were going through this two-year process, the ups and the downs and the waves that were coming. Part of it was we were learning as we were going. Uh, I mean, there were some things going into the pandemic that we knew about disease and how it spreads, but there was so much we didn't know about this virus. And throughout, the advice from the health specialists was changing not because they were irresponsible or inconsistent, but we were learning as time went by and new studies were being done quickly in one part of the world or the other. But the biggest strategic mistake was not, not these, these minor area, uh, areas, areas of, of uh, like, um, do we wear a mask now? Do we wear them indoors? Uh, should we have uh, quarantines, lockdowns? I mean, all of that is debatable, but what I think uh, was almost inexcusable was the cavalier attitude of certain leaders in different countries. And I won't name names, but you and I have an idea of what we're talking about. And all you have to do is, is research, go back and look at the news the last couple of years. Certain leaders discounted the virus. They didn't take it seriously. Some had, I don't know where they were getting their information, not from the scientific health experts, uh, and they were dismissing the, 
the, the potential for, for human and social and economic cost of it. And that to me is the area where you look for the biggest strategic mistakes. It wasn't, should we close the borders or not close the borders or have rapid testing or not? I mean, there's a lot of nuance there and, and, and the decisions would vary according to context. And, and in retrospect, sometimes mistakes were made, but the willful ignorance, uh, the poor leadership, uh, not taking the virus seriously, those were the biggest mistakes. And so not every leader made those mistakes, but a few people, a uh, few leaders, including in big countries, people who should know better, who had the, you know, all the advice in the world at their fingertips and they ignored it and, and uh, basically um, allowed more pain to transpire and allowed the virus uh, to become more widespread. And that's the disappointment. Yes, and many people, many lives could have been saved. Can you give us an example of strategic foresight in practice? Sure, absolutely. I'll go back to uh, some of the earlier stages of the use of foresight. Uh, so again, it really began to take root in 1950s uh, in an organization called RAND, R-A-N-D. RAND is a, a think tank in California. And uh, in, in the 50s, it was doing a lot of research for the US government, particularly around military security intelligence. Uh, so the work started there. And it was a, a somewhat uh, quirky French executive at the Royal Dutch Shell Corporation. So Shell, the oil company, right? And one of its vice presidents, a fellow named Pierre Wack, heard about this work being done in faraway California in the context of, of US-Soviet uh, you know, rivalry and tensions in the Cold War. And, and he was thinking, you know, some of this, this new emerging field strategic foresight could be useful in the private sector to, to look forward to anticipate plausible futures, things that we should be keeping an eye on that we don't have data on today because it hasn't happened yet, okay? Or it could be trends that we've just started to notice, but we haven't thought through how they might interact to produce a certain future. So this fellow Pierre Wack, working for Shell, encouraged the use of foresight to develop different kinds of scenarios in, in his major oil company. And one of the scenarios, this was in the early 1970s, anticipated uh, countries in the Middle East which produced oil would use their economic power to restrict supply and drive up demand uh, and, and drive up prices. And so this was one of the scenarios that was anticipated by Shell ahead of many, many others. And so they incorporated that insight into the way that they were doing business. And so they were not as, they were not as harmed uh, as affected uh, by, by the oil crisis in 1973, as, as other oil corporations were. They also used foresight to anticipate other things, including the, the breakup of the Soviet Union. They didn't predict with certainty this would happen, but they saw underlying developments that gave rise to the possibility that this country, the Soviet Union, may not stay together. So that's, that's an older example. And I'll just flash forward to here we are in 2022. About one out of four Fortune 500 companies have in-house capacity on strategic foresight. And the kinds of things they're using it for 
and other companies that are smaller, not in the top 500 are using it for, is to uh, anticipate changing consumer behavior, changing competition, where demand might emerge. So you have more and more companies today, I, I track this sort of thing with, with interest, who are hiring people with foresight expertise or who are what are called futurists. And there's an overlap between those with foresight expertise and futurism, which basically, like foresight, looks into the future and, and explores possibilities. So companies are hiring people, including big autom automobile manufacturers, fashion companies that are tracking trends, and many, many other firms are hiring futurists to help them get a leg up on the competition by seeing things before other, others do, trends and how they might play out in the years ahead. What happened with this pandemic is, was really a big surprise. Nobody was really believing that it could be possible. Right. It's true. And, you know, the health specialists, the epidemiologists who track this sort of thing, if, if anyone had taken time to speak with them, they would all have said there will be a big pandemic. And in fact, it's, it's worth talking to them again, not about COVID-19 only, but about what what may transpire in the future. And they will let you know that we're going to see more pandemics in the future. Bill Gates, who is not himself a futurist, but given the success of the company he launched, uh, he obviously is a forward-looking individual. A few years ago, he did a TEDx that highlighted the risk of a big pandemic. And coming back to strategic foresight, 12 years ago, the Rockefeller Foundation financed a, a study on technology and development, and it came up with four scenarios of the future. And I, I just pause for a moment to say, a common feature of strategic foresight studies is the development of between three and five plausible futures that have some underpinning assumptions, uh, but point in different directions. And so this Rockefeller study from 2010 identified as one of four possible scenarios a major global pandemic that would be that would cause many fatalities. Uh, it would result in government lockdowns and restrictions, and and China would come out ahead of many other countries. Flat, you know, move forward 12 years to today. What did we see? We saw very much in line with what that uh, scenario was, uh, one of four. So it wasn't the only possible scenario. But it was not one of 400. It was one of four, right? Um, so just to say people in the foresight business anticipated this. And one of the things I would encourage people interested in the future and with all of the volatility and change we've been living through and add on top of that the pandemic, there are studies being done that are publicly available that try to look into the future to 2035 to 2040 on the big kind of geopolitical basis and, and looking at trends like climate change and aging and populism and inequality and imagining where that might lead. And it can be very educational, really open your mind to the possibilities that may confront us. What are you optimistic about when it comes to the future? You know, uh, we've spent a, a good share of this conversation so far, dwelling on something that wasn't a very good experience, that, that's COVID-19, right? You know, the, the, the tragedy that it was and the, and the pain and suffering it's caused. 
and the short-sightedness of, of some political leaders. It might give the impression that uh, I'm, I'm kind of negative about the future. It's not the case at all. I'm definitely a glass is half full kind of person. Uh, and I believe there's reason to be when you look at the resilience of the human spirit and the many positives uh, that we witnessed during COVID, okay? So I'm not in any sense diminishing the great pain that many have suffered and continue to suffer, but let us also from this experience, look at what, we, what we've gathered, what we've learned and, and what has changed. And among the things that have changed is we have greater, there's been a democratization of, of technology. Um, we've, we've found greater convenience many of us to be able to shop from home if we don't want to go outside. There are new apps that provide all kinds of convenient services. Uh, there are innovations like uh, a greater use of telehealth, which is expanding healthcare access, lowering the cost and making healthcare more uh, available to disadvantaged or, or remote communities. So many good things have transpired in the last two years. And so looking forward, I'd have to say I'm positive what it comes down to is positive because we are not beholden to any specific future. So we, whatever scenarios a very thoughtful foresight study might come up with, it is none of them have to come true. And if they have negative aspects and, and, and uh, concerns in them, we can overcome those and forge our own future. So in short, people have the agency, they have the ability uh, and the potential vision to create a more positive future. And I'll just, uh, as one other point, um, which explains a bit um, my uh, optimism, is, is look how in the last two years we've come to appreciate nature more, okay? Um, there's been a great a feeling that this whole pandemic is kind of a reflection of, a, of an imbalance between humans and the environment, okay? And so we see uh, many governments and corporations taking steps to strengthen uh, ESG, so environmental, social, and governance standards. Uh, there's greater attention to ensuring diversity to give disadvantaged and, and marginalized communities and populations uh, more of a stake and more of an opportunity uh, in economic and social life. Um, the Black Lives Matter movement uh, took place and, and raised uh, awareness uh, of, of social concerns and uh, you know, serious uh, issues that um, were confronting um, many societies, not just the United States where that movement originated. So the kind of greater concern we've seen about the environment, um, you have uh, meatless uh, protein products. This is another innovation, just as an example, in what we're eating. Uh, you know, whether or not you're a vegetarian, <laughs> um, the fact is, is that um, meat, continued meat consumption uh, at the current you know, pace uh, is going to be a big problem for the world and for sustainability. And there's awareness over the last two years and innovations that make it possible to enjoy your eating, even if you love meat, and not necessarily have it as much or as often, but there are, there are products that can replace it. So um, that's a, it's a bit long-winded, but I think there's, there's positive coming out of uh, the, the last two years. Um, we, we have the possibility to shape our future um, and we can get an idea with strategic foresight what futures might look like. And then it's up to us to use those insights to decide 
to frame the future that we want and drive in that direction. Yes, and so what means is there is still hope. Oh, so much. Yes, that's the, uh, yes, absolutely. Okay, I'm feeling better now. <laughs> and Bart, are you currently working on anything that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, a lot of my time is spent uh, probing uh, potential futures in different areas. So uh, recently, uh, I and a colleague published a, a series of blogs on India, one of the most populous countries in the world and growing at an incredible 9% a year. Um, India is going to be a big, a bigger and bigger part of, of the world's story and, and, and greater influence in, in politics, economy, and many other fields. And it's still a relatively young society compared to some other countries. They have a large, younger population, but that's changing like it is in Europe or North America or China or Japan. And by 2050, there will be some 300 million people over the age of 60 in India. That's just the over 60 population. And the country is not prepared for that uh, because they have other concerns to deal with. Uh, but in less than 30 years, there's going to be a sea change in the in Indian uh, society and demographic profile. Uh, and in this context, I wanted to highlight uh, what are some of the things that uh, those interested in India and those making decisions in that country uh, should be thinking about? So that's something I just completed. But um, along the same lines of looking forward, you know, in, uh, in North America, the shopping mall has been a part of the consumer experience for decades. But it's, it's suffered even before the pandemic a, a decline as more and more people went online to do their shopping. But, but the shopping mall is not dead it's being reinvented. And so uh, I and a colleague, uh, a futurist, in fact, uh, are working on, on a think piece about what is the future of, of shopping malls. So I've got my hand to an, a number of different uh, juicy topics. I'm not gonna be writing another book in 2022, but rather we'll be exploring uh, what different, um, in different areas, what might the future bring just to stimulate some thinking. Some of it will be a little bit on more serious topics, some of it a little bit more lighthearted, uh, but always looking forward. But your work is fantastic. Very kind of you to say that. It is. And is there a message you would like to leave to our listeners? I'm sure you have. Yes. You asked me earlier if I was a I was positive about the future, how I feel about the future. And I, and I gave you a response that I'm generally thumbs up, that there's, there's great potential. And I, I guess the message I would leave people is um, there are tools available and they're not complex. They're tools that people can use in their own lives, in their family units, um, in the, the civic groups they involve, they're involved in, in their particular space and in, in an organization to, to use foresight tools to better understand and get a handle on what the future might bring and to use those insights to improve their planning, to be better prepared to seize emerging opportunities. So I would encourage them to, whether they read my book or don't read my book, um, to explore futures thinking and foresight tools and, and bring some of those home to the household, to the office, uh, to civic organizations they're involved in, because by doing so, they can give themselves an advantage and put themselves in a better place, whether it's, uh, you know, there, there are sunny days 
or whether there are dark days, they will be in a better position uh, to handle that. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. We need to know that there are people doing this kind of work and that the things that we are afraid maybe cannot happen or can be minimized is what I want to say. Exactly. Exactly. You put your finger on it. So yeah. what we're afraid of, we can do something about it, right? Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and but I really would like you could come back to talk with us about other forest signs. It would be a delight. And in the meantime, I will be listening to the various podcasts that you're producing because you're doing some great work and interviewing some really stimulating, thoughtful people uh, who are opening our eyes to, to new thinking. Thank you. Thank you very much, Bart. And can you tell us how can we find you online, you and of course your book? Sure. The easiest thing to do is if you're on Twitter, and if you're not on Twitter, get on Twitter, at least to, to see uh, what people uh, involved in the areas that you're interested in are saying. On Twitter, I can be found at Big Trends Guy. All together, Big Trends, plural, Guy. Uh, I'm also on uh, Medium, which is a publishing site. And same thing, you can find me under the handle of at Big Trends Guy. And I'd be delighted to hear from you. Wonderful. Thank you very much for your time, Bart. I really enjoyed the program. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time.